Glad to be back this week. Uh, this morning we're going to finish our look at the Beatitudes, what are known as the Beatitudes, these blessings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. I almost said Mark. Matthew chapter 5. This morning we arrive at the eighth and final Beatitude. And as we shall see it, it provides a sort of unexpected climax, you might say. I think many people, had they not been so familiar with these as we are, because we've heard them so many times, most of us, when, imagine if you were the first person, or this is the first time you were hearing these things being said by Jesus. Um, you might have expected an, another blessing listed for those who possess certain characteristics of righteousness and faith in God, and about uh, blessings that come from God, right? Along with those characteristics. But what do we find instead? We actually find a blessing upon those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I think a lot of people in this day and age in particular, had they been hearing these words for the first time, might have been a bit shocked by the eighth blessing listed here. Uh, It doesn't fit with a lot of people's idea of blessing. I also want to notice as we go into our reading of the passage again um, this morning, just point out the structure that has been revealed in our study thus far, it should be apparent, it seems to me, that these eight Beatitudes may be seen as two sets of four. They're structured that way. I don't, I don't know why exactly Jesus wanted to, to do it quite the way he did it. He, he didn't uh, give us a, a, a Beatitudes handbook uh, that expressly stated why he structured it the way he did. Partly, he did it probably just so it'd be easier to remember, um, but, but it does seem that we can see them as two sets of four, um, each ending with an emphasis on righteousness. For example, the fourth beatitude found in verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the eighth and final beatitude in verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So you might say that this is a way that Jesus shows us that Everything he's talking about in these Beatitudes has to do with righteousness. Righteousness that brings glory to God and righteousness that will get a reaction from people and that that reaction will often not be a positive one. So he teaches about the kinds of people who are in the kingdom but also something of what they can expect in this world if they truly live out these characteristics of the kingdom. And we've pointed this out before, but I want to note it again, that there's also a particular clause at the end of both the first and the final beatitude. Um, And that clause is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the way the first one and the last one end. And that promise forms what uh, literary people call an inclusion. It just bookends this section and sets it apart as a distinct section, right? And it also highlights something of the theme, So we see one primary theme is righteousness, and the other primary theme is the kingdom of heaven, the righteousness that goes with the kingdom of heaven, the righteousness that is exhibited by people who are part of the kingdom of heaven. 
So you might say the Beatitudes are about kingdom righteousness. Uh, that Jesus sort of highlights it. That is his theme in the way he structured his teaching here. And that's a good thing to keep in mind as we read through the passage this morning. I think uh, Jesus is essentially saying, here's a basic description of the blessings of the kingdom and of what those blessed by God as members of the kingdom look like and might expect. What they can expect from God in terms of continued blessing and reward, but also what they can expect from the world around them. So with these things in mind, I hope you'll notice these things as I read through the passage again. I'll begin this time with verse 3 through verse 12, because even though the final beatitude is of verse 10, Jesus saw the need to expound upon that one a little bit. Uh, He had a particular emphasis he wanted to put on that final beatitude, perhaps precisely because it may have seemed so out of place to those who were hearing him. Um, He felt the need to drive the home the point, as we'll see. So beginning in verse 3, we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the first time that is said. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we find that last statement of that. And then Jesus tacks on some explanatory words about this final beatitude. And he states it as a blessing again. He states, really restates the beatitude in a way as a blessing and expounds upon it. He says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. He's giving some application here too. For great is reward in heaven. See, they're already members of the kingdom of heaven, right? But as we've seen in our previous study, there's a now and not yet aspect to the kingdom, We can be members of the kingdom now, but the fullness of the kingdom awaits the future, right? The new heavens and the new earth. And then Jesus says, after saying rejoice and being exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we're going to try to figure out why he emphasized these things, if we can, this morning in the way that he did. Before we get into trying to unpack verses 10 through 12 this morning, uh, Let's take a moment to pray, as always. I always feel the need to pray before I teach. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your grace and for your word. I thank you that we have an anchor for our souls. We have your word in a a world that is not only transitory and passing away, but is full of relativism and sin and pluralism, Um, people all about us casting about in a so-called search for truth who don't even believe in the concept of it anymore. We're so glad that we have truth from you in your word. We're so glad that we can count on you 
in this world where everything is so fleeting, where people are so fickle, you never let us down. It is so sweet to trust in our Lord Jesus, as we sang earlier. And we pray now that you will fill us anew with your spirit, that you would speak to our hearts through your word, and that we would hear what you have to say. Enable us by your grace and the work of your spirit to that end, I pray, so that we might be more like Christ and better magnify him, glorify you in this world. We ask all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a, a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was kind of a quirky theologian in some respects and not the most solid guy in the world in, in, in some respects. But he did have some profound things to say. And he was a German Lutheran pastor and theologian. He was actually killed by the Nazis in 1945. He went back to Nazi Germany knowing he could probably be arrested and killed in order to be a witness, and he was. Uh, I think most people consider him a martyr. Um, but he once, once wrote of this passage that, with every beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the people, and their call to come forth from the people becomes increasingly manifest. I think he's on the right track there. I think that is what's happening in these Beatitudes. And that's why by the time you get to the end of the, of the Beatitudes, you have this focus on persecution that Jesus brings. As we saw in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus will go on to say uh, that being persecuted for righteousness' sake, he will say is also being persecuted for my sake. Those two things go together because there's no righteousness without Jesus. Now, the Greek word translated as persecuted in this verse simply means to harass someone, especially because of their beliefs, and it can be any kind of harassment. So it's correctly rendered as persecute numerous times in the New Testament uh, because not only does our Lord teach us in this passage that we must expect persecution if we belong to the kingdom of God, but his, his apostles echoed the same teaching repeatedly. I'll give you one example from the Apostle Paul who wrote to Timothy and said that all who desire to live godly in Christ, uh, those who seek to live out the righteousness of these blessings here, right, that Jesus described, you could say, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Notice he doesn't say might suffer persecution, could possibly sometimes once in a while, maybe, suffer persecution. And he says they will suffer persecution. He's assuming there in 2 Timothy 3.12 exactly what Jesus is assuming in the Beatitudes here, that this is just part of being in the kingdom of God. This is just what life in the kingdom is like. And that would have probably seemed a little bit shocking to at least some of the disciples, and it might seem a little bit shocking to many of us that Jesus would say something like that. For some of us, it might be a little bit convicting because maybe we've been sailing through life. Maybe we've had hardships, for sure, because you can't get through life without hardships. But we can't point to anything that we could call being persecuted. 
But in light of what Jesus has said and what Paul echoed later to Timothy, uh, maybe that should alarm us a little bit. If I've managed to get through life without getting any negative reactions from a sinful world at all, I've got to be questioning whether or not I'm living out the righteousness that Jesus talked about at all. It could be a quite convicting thing to think about if you stop and think about it. The Apostle Peter also echoed our, our Lord's uh, teaching when he wrote in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17, that he said, uh, <clears throat> And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And most people like it when we're good to them, right? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. He's virtually saying the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 5.10 in a slightly different way. You could, you could imagine Peter writing this and remembering Jesus having said that and then writing it to these believers. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. He doesn't assume that people always, when they suffer, are suffering for righteousness' sake. He says, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. They're citing Isaiah 8.12. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks your reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile you for your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He doesn't assume that everyone's going to suffer for good all the time. But he does assume it's going to happen. And when it happens, what should our response be? Well, one of the things that he says we should do is see it as an opportunity for witness. He assumed that through suffering for righteousness, we'll give will be given opportunities by God to be witnesses for Christ in maybe ways that otherwise we couldn't be. And this also comes from Jesus' teaching because Jesus assumed this very thing himself because immediately after giving this last beatitude along with a bit of explanation as we've seen, he went on to say this in Matthew five thirteen through 16. You are the salt of the earth. This is what the beatitudes are about, us being salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. The righteousness of the kingdom we're supposed to be living out isn't supposed to be a secret, private thing. That's not the point of a light. We're to be lights in this way. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So he's talked about persecution, but he also talks about a positive response, not just a negative one. Some people will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But notice he only really imagines two basic responses here. There are certain people that will ignore you. But uh, Jesus is thinking that if we're living out a righteous life the way he modeled for us, we'll get the same kind of reactions he did. And hardly anybody was ambivalent about Jesus who actually came into contact with him. 
most of them either hated him or loved him. There wasn't much in between if you look through the Gospels. He's imagining that those who follow in his footsteps will have the same kinds of reactions in this passage. So if we're being like him, we ought to have an experience that's sort of like his was when he was walking this earth. That's the assumption of this passage. At any rate, our Lord made it clear that a part of the blessing that comes with persecution is the opportunity to bring glory to God in his further teaching after this, didn't he? But he had more to say about the persecution that we'll face as we see in the next verse of our passage in verse 11. In the first part of verse 11, Jesus sort of restates, as we've seen, the beatitude in a slightly different way. He says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Now, we're going to notice a couple of things here. First, notice the very striking shift from the third person to the second person in Jesus' restatement of the blessing. Our Lord moved from saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, to saying, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. In this way, he was indicating to the disciples to whom he was speaking that he considered them to be members of the kingdom who actually had all these blessings. So think about that for a moment. Jesus is basically saying, you all are genuine. You are what I just described. You then will be persecuted, as I just said. He's driving the, the point home in a personal way, isn't he? Um, he was saying, yeah, you, you uh, are members of the kingdom. You do possess all these blessings, and one of those blessings is persecution. And I'm going to say it again, right, <laughs> just so you get it. But why did he feel the need to repeat it this way? Well, he, he doesn't exactly say. Again, he didn't leave behind a, a Beatitudes manual. He did, he did teach this in a larger context that helps us to understand what his goals might have been. But one, one reason that he, he may have stressed this again the way he did and more forcefully may have been due to the fact that, as I said before, persecution doesn't at first seem to most of us to actually be a blessing. Most people, when they suffer hardship, wonder if they're cursed rather than blessed, for example. Especially Jews, who knew all about blessings and cursings from the Old Testament law. They might have been tempted to see it as a curse. And Jesus says, mm, it's a blessing. And he said it twice. And he said it in a more personal way the second time, in order to make the point even more clear. It, it might have been a temptation for them to overlook this final beatitude and not concentrate so much on it and only focus on the preceding blessings. I'm sure we could all identify with such a tendency, right? Uh, we want the blessings that aren't hard, <laughs> that don't, don't bring difficulties for us. Uh, that's just a human tendency. We like things to be easy. I'm wondering how many of us, had we been asked before the service this morning, would have said that we saw being persecuted for our faith as a blessing from God and that we really want to be blessed this way, right? Probably not many of us would have said, well, some of us might have, that, yeah, it's a blessing, but how many of us would have said, boy, I'm, I'm anxious to have that blessing along with all the others? 
most of us aren't anxious for, to be hurt, to be persecuted in any way. Jesus understands that. And so he drives home the point again. This is a blessing. This is a blessing. We got to think differently than we're used to thinking, don't we? We've got to think the way Jesus teaches us to think. We've got to view things the way he teaches us to view them. I tell you, if you're one of those people that every time you suffer at all for your faith, you, you know, crumble up and go cow in a corner or something like that and think it's, it's a terrible thing that's happening to you and think that it's horrible and think that maybe God doesn't love you anymore, uh, you're going to be a miserable Christian and you will refuse to witness to Jesus if that's what you think. You'll stop living the way he wants you to live. But if instead you see it as a blessing, people are actually seeing Christ in me and therefore I'm getting the reaction he got. And you see that as an encouragement to you. Your whole outlook would be different when you see it as a blessing. And so I think Jesus had a reason to drive this point home, not just for the disciples then, but for all of us now. So that's the first thing to notice, the shift in the way he spoke here. But notice also, he adds a word. There's an added word here. Once again, our Lord moved from saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, to saying, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. He throws another word in there. kind of extends what he means by persecution because many people might think of persecution and think mostly of one kind of activity, and he wants, he wants to give a more broad understanding of what he means by adding this other word, the added word, the Greek word translated revile in the New King James Version that I'm using, basically means to disparage, to insult, to mock someone. And so the word refers to verbal assault, doesn't it, on another person. We may often think of persecution as just physical assault of some kind. That's often what people think of when they think of persecution, people who are beaten for their faith. Um, or something along those lines, or thrown in jail. That idea is certainly included in the broader term for persecute that's used here by Jesus. But but this word, along with Jesus' further clarification, as we'll see in the rest of the verse, shows that he lays emphasis upon the verbal attacks that his disciples can expect. This is perhaps because this is more common kind of persecution. People who might be afraid to hit you won't necessarily be afraid to say some horrible thing about you, especially if it's behind your back. People do this kind of thing all the time. And so maybe he adds this because it's more common, but it might also be that he adds it because such verbal assault sometimes, sometimes is potentially more difficult to endure than physical pain. It depends on what is said, how it's said, to whom it's said. And whatever the consequences of it that are. False charges can lead to all kinds of problems in a person's life, for example. As Kent Hughes has observed in his application of this passage, 
Persecution can go to physical extremes, as the church's bloody history records, but most often it is verbal harassment, sometimes audible, sometimes whispered, sometimes direct, sometimes innuendo. Verbal abuse and social ostracism may call for as much heroism as braving the arena. For some people, that may be true. This verbal harassment mentioned by Hughes is, of course, the the focus of our Lord Jesus' teaching here, and this is made even more clear as we read the rest of the verse where he says, and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, it's important to remember that those only are blessed who are falsely spoken of in an evil way on account of, and on account of Jesus. We're not blessed simply because we suffer, but because we suffer unjustly for Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Most of us, you can't get through life without being verbally assaulted, right? If you've ever grown up and been bullied in school or whatever, you know what I'm talking about. You can't get through life in a sinful world without being harassed verbally at some point or another. And Jesus isn't talking about that necessarily. He's talking about being attacked because you love him and want to live for him. The blessing comes with that. As we've already seen earlier, the the Apostle Peter remembered this teaching of Jesus, and he elaborated on it some in his first epistle. So I want to look back to what Peter says um, and how he discusses this further. Uh, This time into 1 Peter 2, I'm going to read there verses 19 through 23, because he he talks about these same concepts. It's almost as though he was writing with this teaching of Jesus right in his head and talking about the implications of it. It's like Peter's application of this, you might say. And he says in 1 Peter 2, 19, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongly. Or wrongfully, for what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? You see, you just, there you're just getting what you deserve, perhaps. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So Peter made it clear that suffering at the hands of others is only commendable before God when it is done due to our faithfulness to him as we seek to follow the example of Jesus. That's commendable. That's where the blessing comes in. And this is just making clear what Jesus said for us. He also made it clear, based on Jesus' teaching, that we shouldn't think it a strange thing when we encounter such suffering or persecution. As he went on to say in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verses 12 through 16, Beloved, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. You you almost hear him remembering what Jesus said. This is what they did to the prophets who came before (laughs) This is just what happens, right? Um, 
He said, don't think it's strange. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You might not feel so glad and joyful now when you're hurting, but you're looking forward to joy in the future. But Jesus will see, he says, we can be glad and joyful now even. Now Peter's taking the same concepts from the passage in Matthew 5 and talking about them. As I've said, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, because Jesus said so, right? For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter sees it as reassuring that if we're being treated the way Jesus was being treated, who had the spirit of God to the full, right? Then this is just an indication that we have the same spirit. In other words, seeing from this point of view, being persecuted is very encouraging because it means we're real. We're the genuine article. People don't bother persecuting somebody that's a phony and they know it unless they mock them for being a phony, right? And then that's for doing evil and they deserve it, according to Peter. But Peter, people who know that they're being attacked because they love Jesus and they're living for him, Wow, that's an encouragement to them because people actually see Christ in them. And that's why they're reacting to them the way they are. And there's no no better compliment to a Christian for them to hear that people see Christ in them, even if they hear it in this way. It's still encouragement to them. Peter, that seems to be what's in his head anyway. But let none of you, he says, suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. For yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. So Peter took to heart and expanded upon the teaching of our Lord Jesus, remembering that we are only blessed when we are viled and persecuted for the sake of or on account of Jesus. I think uh, John Piper is, is helpful in stressing this aspect of Jesus' teaching. When he writes about the righteousness that Jesus had in mind here, see if you appreciate what he said as much as I do. He wrote this. Another way to define the righteousness of verse 10 is to look at its parallel in verse 11. In verse 10, the persecution is on account of righteousness. But in verse 11, it is on account of Jesus. Blessed are you when men revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, Jesus said, on my account and on account of righteousness probably mean the same thing. So we learn from this that true righteousness, the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus will go on to talk about in verse 20, always involves a relationship with Jesus. True righteousness is not done for its own sake. It is done for Jesus' sake. The mercy and the purity and the peacemaking of a disciple of Jesus comes from Jesus, who said, without me you can do nothing, John 15, 5, and is done for the honor of Jesus. It is this attachment to Jesus that gives our righteousness its distinct character. But that raises a question, he writes. If that is what righteousness means, being merciful and pure and peaceable by relying on Jesus and living for his glory, why would anybody persecute that? It doesn't seem very offensive. 
think that's a good question. And we have some hints to that if you look throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But I think a good answer to the question also comes from a, an account uh, that Luke records of a particular encounter that Jesus had with the scribes and the Pharisees. And John Piper actually suggests that we look at that passage, so I did, and with him, and looked at it myself, and this is what it says, and I think it's helpful in understanding why people would want to persecute us this way, for just being kind, loving, Christ-like people. Why would they want to do that? Well, we get some hints by looking at the reaction of some people who hated Jesus to what he did. In Luke 16, verses 13 through 15, our departed brother Luke says that this is what Jesus taught. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. By mammon, he meant money. And then we read the reaction to what Jesus said by the Pharisees. Luke says, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. They mocked him. They verbally persecuted him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So what did he do in response to their deriding him for what he said? He doubled down, is what he did. He confronted them even more. Now, the Pharisees' response to Jesus' teaching, again, was that they derided, they ridiculed, they scoffed him at him, uh, they verbally assaulted him. But why? Well, we, I think we have at least two reasons in that passage I just read. First, because they were lovers of money, which is a root of all kinds of evil, as Paul tells us, Right? This means that Jesus' righteousness exposed their sinfulness for what it really was and thus posed a challenge to them. That's one of the reasons people persecute righteous people. Because the more righteous we are, the more Christ-like we are, the more sinful they appear. And they don't like that. We don't even have to confront their sin directly. Just being righteous around them exposes how sinful they are. And they hate it. They want to stop it. Because they want to be able to pat themselves on the back at the end of the day and say, boy, what a a good boy am I, or whatever. They can't do it. There's a second reason here, because they're the kind of people who justify themselves before men. They don't really care what God thinks. They care what other people think, though about them. They sought to justify their evil by attacking Jesus' righteousness. They sought to save face, to look good before other people by making Jesus look bad. And that's what they'll do to his followers. This is what we can expect. These kinds of reactions if we're like Jesus, 
And if, we, and if we get those reactions because we're like Jesus, instead of being saying, oh, woe is me, God must hate me, we'll just say, no, God must really be working in me through the power of his, of his spirit, and that encourages me. <laughs> I don't want to live the kind of life that the devil doesn't bother to take notice of. <laughs> I want to be faithful. So through our righteous living, as Jesus did, and through our witness, we will expose the world's love of evil. And in their desire to justify us, or themselves rather, they will attack us. And as we've already seen, Peter tells us that we shouldn't be at all surprised by such a reaction. For Christian, it's like the cost of doing business. It's just part of the deal. And we accept it. And we see it as a blessing. Because we have a different attitude than other people. But of course, again, he was only repeating the teaching of our Lord, such as when Jesus said on another occasion in John 15, verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. As Jesus taught, such persecution is a blessing. And as such, it should bring us joy, not sorrow. As he went on to teach in our primary text for this morning, back in Matthew 12, where he said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That's your response to persecution, Jesus says. That's the right response. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. We're not living for earthly things. The person who suffers for the sake of Christ should then actually rejoice. And we've already seen a couple of reasons just reading the Beatitude. It starts off with blessed are those who are persecuted, right? Uh, So we can rejoice because this is a sign that we're blessed by God. And the second one also comes in the last part of the verse where it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When When we receive this reaction, it's just proof that we really are part of the kingdom of heaven. And that's always encouragement to a believer. Who doesn't want assurance of salvation? This is one way we get it, apparently. But now Jesus says that even more than getting to be in the kingdom of heaven, as it is manifested now on this earth, we will have a great reward in heaven in the future. And this is why the apostles rejoiced when they suffered persecution, as the example of the apostles demonstrates, and I've given you a couple of scriptures there. One of them is from the book of Acts, but I want to zero in on the example of Paul. Remember that in his second epistle to the Corinthians, he wrote about the constant persecution that he and his fellow ministers of the gospel endured. He said this in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us, We are hard-pressed on every side. That's a way of saying everywhere we turn, we find difficulty and hardship. It's not like we can turn around and go that way and not have it. No, it's on every side. (laughs) 
There is no way for them to go and not have trouble. Think about that. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. And there, who does he mean not forsaken by? It has to be God, right? Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, he's writing this letter. He's still going, right? Always, he said, carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And then he went on to say, it's important to remember, later in the same passage, beginning of verse 17, therefore we do not lose heart. Here's described this constant persecution and trouble. It's just his life. And then he says, but we don't lose heart. We're not discouraged. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. All the stuff that's coming from the outside can't change the relationship with Christ they have on the inside and what God's doing in their hearts to make them more like Christ. That can't stop that. It only helps it, really. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, although it does it ever seem like a moment when it's happening? No, it seems like forever when it's happening. But in light of eternity, see, Paul has an eternal perspective. It's momentary. It's fleeting. And so he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's that reward in heaven mentality that Jesus talked about. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In other words, you've got to have the perspective Jesus said to have, the reward in heaven the eternal perspective, and that will change how you view this world and what happens in it, if you believe it, if you believe what Jesus says, and Paul did. And so that's why he could live this life of constant hardship, constant persecution, and not be discouraged. And we can too, because the same spirit who worked through Paul works through us. We need to remember something when we read about these people, and I stress this all the time. The hero of that passage is not Paul. It's God. God enabled Paul to be like this. And we serve the same God, and he can do the same thing for us. The hero here is the Spirit of God working through Paul. And he can do in us and through us what he did through Paul. We can have that same attitude. We can live out as he did what Jesus taught in these Beatitudes by the grace of God. And then Jesus says something else which is intended to be encouraging. Here's this final phrase here. We won't have to spend much time on it. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's it's almost like Peter saying, don't think it's a strange thing. This is what happens to people who serve God faithfully. So Jesus, I think, is saying not only should we rejoice because we look forward to a great reward in heaven, but also because persecution, it puts us in such good company, doesn't it? 
And this brings us reassurance because it is a sign that we're true followers of God just as those prophets were. And we can expect the same heavenly reward then. After all, who could doubt that any of those prophets will be rewarded in heaven? Does anybody here doubt that Isaiah has a reward in heaven awaiting him? Who suffered persecution for his faith? Or Jeremiah, who was terribly persecuted for being a faithful prophet? We all know he's going to have a reward. Well, Jesus says, well, rejoice. You're in that company. You're going to get the same reward. That should make you happy. And it does if you stop to think about it. And you don't just gloss over what Jesus is saying so you can get to the next verse or something. But really focus on it. So with all this teaching in mind, I think I'd just like to conclude with an interesting instance from the life of Charles Spurgeon. He had a good wife. And uh, this, this, this account is related by Kent Hughes in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He writes, during a stressful time in Charles Spurgeon's life when he was depressed by criticism, and that happened to him a lot, a lot of criticism, his wife took a sheet of paper, printed the eight Beatitudes on it in large old English-style script, and tacked it to the ceiling over his bed. She wanted the reality to saturate his mind morning and evening. Everyone who lives righteously will be persecuted, and there are no exceptions. She wanted her husband to be re- to be, to be Reminded of the fact that he was suffering persecution because he's a genuine believer. Just like Jesus said. She thought that would encourage him. It should. I'm sure it did. Perhaps we should all go home and put a copy of the Beatitudes somewhere in some conspicuous place as a reminder in our home. And not leave out verse 10. But maybe even put it in bold letters. Because that's the one... We seem to not want to believe. Let's take time to pray. Holy Father, I hope I've I've done a good job explaining what this passage is about in the light of the context and the rest of Scripture to try to give us all a good sense of what our Lord Jesus was really getting at. The way his apostles understood what he said, the way we're supposed to understand what he said. Lord, help us not to be those kinds of professing Christians who want a Christianity without hardship because that will be a false Christianity. It's not, that's not the kind of Christianity that's in the Bible. We're told that through many tribulations we shall enter the kingdom of God. We're told to expect persecution if we're faithful to Christ. And Lord, maybe we should be worried if we're not being harassed in any way. Maybe, maybe it's because we're not being faithful. Maybe sometimes we're deceived into thinking that we're being a faithful witness when others don't react badly to us, when it might just be the other way around. Give us the wisdom to be able to discern such things in our daily lives, Lord. And help us in all that we do to just sincerely live out our Christian faith, to speak the truth in love always, but to speak it with clarity. Do in us what you did in Paul and Peter and the prophets of old. Be the same hero to us that you were to them. Give us the faith that they had.
because you gave it to them. Help us to remember that you can and will do through us what you did through them. We can follow the example of Christ. We can be courageous because we have your spirit. Fill us with his encouragement as we leave here today. And help us to see these things as you teach us to see them. We ask all these things for our good and for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As always, I thank you for your kind attention. You're such good hearers of the word.